It's a delight to press to the time in our gathering where we sit under the, the preached Word of God together. It is His huge grace to me that I would be able to open the Scriptures with you in this way. If you've not been here before, uh, my name is Matt. I am one of our pastors. Seven Mile Road is a church committed to believing the gospel in community and on mission for Jesus in greater Boston. And we'd love to have you ask more about who we are and what is happening with us here. We are preaching through the odd and wonderful book of Esther. I'm really hopeful about what the Spirit may do in the time that we have together this morning. When you preach, there is a sense in which you are preaching to everyone within earshot, right? Whoever happens to come, we all benefit from hearing the soul-stirring and beautifully compelling and eternally true words of God, whatever the text, whatever the context, whatever the theme, we have come to see that we cannot live on bread alone. We need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so for us, there is no such thing as a sermon that doesn't apply or doesn't speak to us. If it's rooted in the revelation of Scripture, we want it. Every meal that we eat makes us stronger. That is true. There's also a sense in which specific texts of Scripture speak in particular ways to particular people in particular circumstances. We've felt this in preaching through the book of Esther. I have preached right at arrogant husbands like King Ahasuerus who were in danger of sinning against their wives and their families. I have preached right at political junkies in the room like these Persians who were in danger of moving to their hearts to a place where they would have a pseudo-savior in their government and not in the living God. We preached directly to some of you who have been the victims of sexual assault, like Esther, and talked with you about how God can bring healing and see that at the cross there is a place to be rid of your disgrace. Those sermons were for everyone, and they were also particularly for some of you. That's going to happen this morning. Today I am preaching to everybody, also particularly to those who both can call God Father, but have fallen far away from Him. Let me just press those two things for you. You have God as your Father. For us, that means that you are a believer. You have responded in repentance and faith to the grace of the Father in the person and the work of the Son, Jesus, for your salvation. You've been baptized into the family of God with these brothers and sisters, and He is yours. And also, you have messed things up. You have fallen away from where you know you should be. Whether that is just through ugly and overt rebellion, that happens, or it is through a lazy, sleepy compromise, that happens, or it is just through foolish and stupid sin, that happens. Whatever the case, you know that you are not acting like 
a son or a daughter of God is supposed to act. And then you find yourself in a tough spot because of your compromise or your sin, uh, a messy place that you have gotten yourself into. You had a shovel, you dug a pit, you fell into it, and you can't come out. This happens all the time. Sometimes your entire life falls into that place, the whole thing. Your whole life is one dark mess. You don't pray. You don't read your Bible. You don't come down and give gladly and intentionally. There's ten commands and you're breaking like nine or ten a day. And you are far away from who you were called to be. We get there, right? Sometimes this is in one particular place of your life. Like a marriage that has just grown hard and dark And most of that is because you have not lived wholly within that marriage and you look at it and you say, there's no crawling out of this. For some of us, it is sin, sometimes addictive sin, pornography, overeating, overspending. You've gone down that route and you are in a dark place and don't know if there is any hope. For some of you, there's been compromise in your life, compromise at work. There's now an issue that is looming And you are thinking, I have so messed this up. I have so failed God. There is no way that he would still be interested in being involved with me. If this is you, you are who I have been praying for this week. You are who the Spirit has sent me to speak to. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Father, I pray that you be gracious to all of us. We all need to know the doctrine of the relentless love of God for our lives. Some of us, Father, you know we need it today. Some of us need it right now. So I pray that you be gracious as we come to the story of our brother Mordecai, our sister Esther, of our Father God, and that you teach us more about your love and that we'd rest in it today. Would you hear my prayer and answer? Amen. All right, let me start and establish context with you. The Jews... In the book of Esther, Mordecai, Esther, all of the people, they are the covenant people of God. They do have God as their father, but they are not living like it. They are not where they are supposed to be. Now, in one sense, this was true literally, physically, geographically, GPS style. The covenant people of God were supposed to be living obedient and fat and happy and blessed in the promised land, Judah, Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God. But they had sinned, persistent, ridiculous, faithless, ugly, idolatrous sin for generations. And so in his judgment, the father exiled them to a faraway land. Babylon. For 70 years, he disciplined them there under the pagan rule of the Persians. But then, in his grace, he made a way for the people to return to Jerusalem. That's the story that we read about in the biblical books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Many Jews, the first chance that they got As soon as God was ready to relent, they got out of Persia. 
Somehow, I ended up doing my undergraduate degree in a city called Tulsa, Oklahoma. They handed me my degree. I hugged some of my friends. I got in the car, drove to the airport, got on a plane, and I've never been back. This is what many Jews did as soon as God set them free from living in Persia. Of course they did. That was the covenantal, courageous, right, faithful thing to do. They didn't belong living there. They belonged in Jerusalem. How could they not jump at the chance to come back to God, His temple, His city, His place? Life was not easy or perfect in the rebuilt Jerusalem, but they were where they were supposed to be. Not so Mordecai or Esther or the Jews of our story. They stayed in Persia. Now, we don't know exactly why, um, what their individual circumstances were. Whatever the case, they stayed. And the longer that the Jews were geographically in the wrong place, the further that they fell spiritually. We are not reading about Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were fiery in their defiance of the Persian way. These Jews had blended in. Remember, this is the book of the Bible where the name of God does not even need to be. It isn't even mentioned. This would not have been possible if Mordecai and Esther and the people were living fiery, holy, Godward, covenantally obedient lives. You, you couldn't have written a book about them without mentioning God unless this was the case. If you came and spoke to me about Matt McCann or Jeremy Davis or Patty Roselle or many of you that I know, I couldn't get too far in talking about you without mentioning the name of God because your lives are so Godward and you are pursuing God in all of His grace. Not so these people. They wore their faith like underwear where nobody else could see it. Remember that nobody even knew that Mordecai was Jewish until this incident with Haman. And they still don't know that Esther is Jewish. Even if Mordecai and Esther were not living completely pagan lives in every possible way, they had removed God from their daily consciousness. They were far from him. Okay. Now what happens in the story? Last week we see that an enemy rises up. His name is Haman. He manipulates the king into a genocidal death sentence on the people of God. Doom is announced. That's how he said it last week. As you're reading the story, you are pushed to ask this question. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is it all over for these Jews in Persia? Would God still have any interest in, at all in saving them? They are not Daniel. When you read about Daniel and you see him get thrown into the lion's den, what's going on in your heart? That brother's coming out. He's been righteous and faithful. They are not Nehemiah. When you see Nehemiah risk his position and his influence in his life and come to Darius and say, you need to let me go back and rebuild Jerusalem, what are you thinking in your heart is going to happen with that brother? God's going to be with him. Look at that courage. This is different. 
This is compromised and shady Mordecai, compromised Esther, very far from where they're supposed to be. What is going to happen in this case? You feel that? Okay. Now, last week we zoomed in on the action of God and His response. This week I'm doing something different. I want you to zoom in with me on the action of the people of God in the story. Here's my question. How does a compromised sinner respond when doom is announced, when trouble comes, when you are spinning inside of a pitch black tunnel that you walked into and you can't see any light anywhere? What do you do when your doom is announced? What's the temptation for your response to be? Despair, despondency, paralysis to just go, I give up, I throw in the towel to just curl up in a little ball and wait to die, to just go, look, we have sinned, we had our chance to do what was right and brave for God, but we didn't do it, and now it's over, it is too late for us, there is no way that God is still for us, it's over. Illustration. One of the books that I've read in preparing to preach through the book of Esther with you is a book about the Rwandan genocide. Um, if you don't know the story of what happened in Rwanda in the mid-90s, the government adopted a policy according to which everyone in the nation's Hutu majority was encouraged, commanded to kill everyone in the nation's Tutsi minority. Somewhere between 800,000 and a million Tutsi men, women, and children were murdered within a span of about 100 days, most of them by machete. And there was this author, uh, Philip Gurevich, he just needed to know, how could something happen like that? And so he went to Rwanda to write a book, and he named the book, We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed with all of our families. That's a long title for a book, but that's what he named it because that is the exact text from a letter that was written from some villagers to a bishop. Can you hear the resignation in there? We just want to let you know that tomorrow we're going to die. He talked with a survivor who told him about how the spirit had been taken from the Tutsi people when their genocidal doom was announced. They just gave up any hope of survival. And the man said to him, I remember what people said to their killers. They said things like, will you just let us pray and then you can kill us? Or, I don't want to die in the street. Will you take me into my house and kill me there? And then the man said this, when you are that resigned, you are already dead. Do you feel that? Okay, I read this whole book and by the end, I get it. I get where that response comes from when doom is announced. We're dead. It is too late for us. There is no hope. 
Now, if that was the natural response of the Tutsi people in the mid-90s, how much more could that be the response of these people who knew they had broken covenant with God and had the entire power of the fiercest empire on earth coming after them? Would it surprise anyone in this church if we kept reading and the next thing that we read in the book of Esther was that Mordecai and Esther and all of the Jews gave up hope and curled up into a ball and waited to die? Wouldn't surprise anyone. But that's not what we get. Instead, we see this people who stir themselves to action who lean back into the grace of God, who return to their father. Hear this with me again. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for No one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. All right, I've told you that we got a bunch of calls to make as we study through this book of Esther theologically. Here's another one. Some writers and commentators say that there is nothing spiritual, nothing prayerful, nothing Godward about this response of the people, that this is all just mourning and weeping and lamenting, sadness and sorrow, like a secular woe is me, that they're just actually responding the way that anyone would respond, believer or not, to this doom being announced. I don't think that's it. Here's why. There is what we would call a literary echo in this text. This happens all the time in Scripture. It happens prominently in the New Testament. An inspired writer will use words that link back to another inspired writer before them. Whenever that happens, what do you want to do? You want to follow the breadcrumbs and see what was written before and allow that to inform and to shape and to illuminate what was written later. There's only one other place in all of Scripture where these three words, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, get tied together. And that's in the book of Joel. Not surprisingly, the people in the book of Joel had had doom announced to them. It was in the form of locusts who were headed for their lands. It was a judgment from God, and if those locusts hit their fields, their livelihood would be wiped out. Imminent doom. Listen to what Joel says to the people. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with lamenting. You hear it? Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, 
For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you feel this? By the mouth and the pen of Joel, God is instructing his people how you respond when doom is announced to you or you find yourself in a dark place because you have faded far from where you should have been. Does Joel tell them, ah, it's too late. It's too late. It's all over for you. You've been too sinful. God is done with you. Crawl up in a ball and wait to die. No. Instead, Joel says what? The key command is return. Return. Repent. Rend your hearts. Take hold of the grace of God again. Weep, mourn, lament. That is what we are seeing in the text of Esther. Beginning with Mordecai and then the people and then Esther, we don't see paralysis or despair or resignation. We see them stirred to action. Mordecai leads, the people follow, but we see this especially clearly in Esther. Think about this with me. Think about Esther in this scene. Esther's life has taken a thousand wrong turns. Some of them were forced upon her, some of them were not. Her life is now a complicated mess. She is married to an uncircumcised pagan. That would have been really bad. She is living in Susa, in Persia. She is fully, 100% assimilated into Persian culture. She has hidden her faith so well, no one even knows that she's Jewish. She has not worshipped with God's people in years. She has not attended a feast day. She's probably not been sitting under the teaching of Scripture or even reading, memorizing, meditating on Scripture. Nothing at all. To use older covenant terms, this girl is as far away from God as she could have become. Now her people come under a death sentence. Her husband has not come near her for 30 days. This is a hopeless situation for Esther. There is no getting out of this one. It is too late for her. You have to feel that if you're going to feel the weight of what happens next in the text. Mordecai comes to her and says, Esther, stir yourself. Get up and go to the king. Esther says, I can't do that. That might cost me my life. And he hasn't asked for me for 30 days. And Mordecai ends with the words that we know are so famous from the book. And he says, Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So this is the moment of truth in the book. How is Esther going to respond? Again, read the story with me. You could easily see Esther doing what right now? Nothing. Just crawling into her closet and waiting to die. That could totally be her response to his words. You could imagine Esther saying, there is no way God 
could ever use someone like me. No way. After everything that I have done, after everything that I have failed to do, look who I have become. You can't get further away from God than I am right now. There is no way, no way, that God would still be interested in blessing me or my repentance or my actions. None. But that's not what we get. This is verse 15. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and young, my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. All right. Do you know that I actually read one commentator that said, Esther's statement here is one of resignation to the inevitable rather than a statement of faith. It is a whimper and not a bark. I read that and I immediately jumped up and I opened the window in my room from where I read and I took the commentary and I whipped it as far away from me as I possibly could. That's what we call dirty hermeneutics right there. That is ridiculous. This is no resignation to the inevitable. This is Esther exercising faith, finally taking action, refusing to lay down and die. This is Esther leaning back into the grace of God, throwing herself on his mercies. What does she say? She says, get everybody together for three days. We're going to do what Joel said you're supposed to do. We are returning to the Lord we are praying, we are fasting, we are repenting, we are trusting God, and I am going to the king. I love this scene in the book. No, Esther had not lived the perfect life. Absolutely not. But she is making progress in this story. She's the only character in the book whose character develops from beginning to end. She is changing Esther doesn't despair. Esther returns to God. All right, now question. What is it that would ever motivate Esther to be stirred like this? To ever imagine that God would have any intention at all of not having her just get her head cut off for going to stand before the king? That after she had faded so far, God would welcome her back again. What would ever motivate her to think that that might happen? Answer, the character of her God. Hear the words of Joel with me again. Return to the Lord. Why? For he is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. All right, here's why I've been so pumped to preach to you from this text this morning. Last week, I had to look at you and say this. Your sin 
is way worse, way worse than you ever imagined. Last week, I also had to say to you this. God is way holier than you ever imagined. This week, I have to say this to you as a faithful pastor. The love of God for you runs way deeper than you ever imagined. He never stops loving his own. Never. His love is furious and limitless and relentless. If he is your father, there is no distance that you can run from him. There is no pit so deep that you can dig it and fall into it that he cannot reach you. There is no amount of sin that you can commit that can ever drive you out of the reach of his love. He is always ready, anxious, willing for you to repent and return. He doesn't have to be this way, but this is how he is. Now, the text of Esther explicitly helps you to see this by compelling you to contrast God, our king, with King Ahasuerus, at least two ways. First one, did you notice at the beginning of our reading today, when the doom was announced and Mordecai ripped off his uh, political clothes and put on his sackcloth, it says that He came up as close to the palace gate as he could, but he didn't dare go any further than the gates. Why? Because there was no sackcloth allowed in the king's presence. In other words, what? You don't bring your troubles or your sorrows or your screw-ups or your doom into King Ahasuerus's I don't want to hear it. You are only allowed in my palace when you're looking good and things are going right and you have some good news for me. I don't want to hear anything about your need or your doom. And then two, what was Esther's great fear in this text? Why is she terrified? She doesn't know how the king is going to respond when she comes to him for help. The king may not want to help. The king may not offer her a welcome. The king may not hold out his royal scepter. The king may not want Esther near him anymore. Do you feel that? You're supposed to see that and then rejoice with me. This is not the way it is with your father. If you are his son, if you are his daughter, he is always ready for us to return to him in our doom, in our sin, in our struggles, in our troubles. He never threatens to cast us away. Because of the work of Christ for us, we are welcome, period. He is always ready for return always. Nowhere in Scripture is this character of God shown off more clearly than in the Gospel of Luke and Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. 
more appropriately called the prodigal father for his lavish love that we see. Dan read this to begin our service. What happens in this parable? You have a son, and he sins terribly. It's disgusting. And he ends up in a very far away country. You feeling that? And his life is a mess, and he is doomed. He is about to starve to death. He is so famished that he's looking at the pig slop and he, and he is envying something to eat. The first time you ever read through this parable, when you get to that part and he is looking at the pig slop and you see the wreck that he has made of his life, what are you expecting the prodigal son to do right there? You are expecting him to crawl up in a ball and just wait to die. That's it. But instead, what does he do? He stirs himself, comes to himself, the text says. And he gets up and he acts. And he returns home. And he throws himself on the mercy of his father. He leans back into his grace. Not with a presumption He does not stroll carelessly back home like nothing happened. Hey, Dad, what time's dinner? No, there's no presumption here. He returns repenting. He returns broken. He returns humble. He returns, and what's going through his mind? He's a logical kid. He's saying to himself, okay, maybe my dad will just let me live out in the backyard in a tent or something like that. Maybe my father will find it in his heart to not utterly despise the wreck that I have become and send me away. Maybe he will just give me enough grace so that I can survive. He gets home to his father, and what does he say? He says, Father, I have sinned against you. I don't deserve to be treated like a son anymore, but I'm going to die if you don't show me some grace. I'll be fine just living as a slave. Okay, again, the first time you ever read the story, what are you expecting the father to do right here? First thought is that he's going to slam the door shut and say, get off my porch, you loser, and don't come back. That's what you're expecting, right? Definitely. And then you think, I'm reading the Bible, so maybe he'll show some compassion. Maybe he'll pause and shake his head and say, fine, you can live under the porch and you can work out in the fields. And really that would have been enough, right? This, this son just deserves wrath. He's allowing him to live. But that's not what you get, is it? Jesus says, The dad doesn't even wait on the porch. As soon as he sees his son in the distance, he jumps off the porch and he runs and he tackles his son. And he welcomes him with these open arms. This is not possible. There is no father who loves like this. 
And then you see that there is. And you see that the right name for the story is prodigal, father, reckless, limitless, wasteful in his love for his son. And he, he throws this son a feast because he's come home. You guys, this is the love of the father for his sons and his daughters. This is what you are seeing in the story of Esther. What do you imagine God's going to do when he sees the three days of prayer from Esther and these compromised people? Talk to the hand. <laughs> Forget you. I've got my good ones, my remnant. They're already back in Jerusalem. You guys can just let the genocide begin. I don't care. No. Instead, the story of the book of Esther, the reason we have it, is that God in his grace acts to save. And the book ends with a feast of God's people with their God, marveling at his steadfast love. Okay, if you have not heard it before, that is the gospel. That's who our Father is, and that's who you are. You want a definition of a Christian? Here it is. It is not someone who is always perfect and sinless. It is not someone who has kept everything pretty much functioning and together. No. It is not someone who has kept all the rules right all the time. A Christian is someone who has come to see and to believe that Joel was telling the truth, that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that God who is like that is for me. That's a Christian. That's a Christian. Someone who is always repenting, always returning, always leaning back into the grace of God no matter how far they have fallen. That's it. Remember my illustration of Rwanda and the Rwandan survivor? He said something else to the guy who was writing the book. There was this awkward pause when he was kind of ragging, ragging on his people for being so without fight in them and spiritless and resigned to die. And there was this awkward pause. And then he says, you know, I've got to confess something to you. I had given up too. I was just waiting to die. He said, it wasn't until this old neighbor lady of mine came and she took me by the arms and she shook me and she said, run, run. Don't stay here in this place. Run. And I was stirred to some hope and some action and I ran to a different place that day. That is what the Holy Spirit of God has sent me to say to you today. That's it. If you think it is too late for God to be involved in your little situation or the whole mess of your life because you know that you have compromised and abdicated or hidden your faith or just flat out rebelled for so long, 
I just want to shake you today and point you to the character of God and say, don't despair. Don't be paralyzed. Don't ever crawl up in a ball and just wait to die. No matter how far we find ourselves from this God, who thankfully is the God, the right response is always to stir yourself to action, to repent, to fast and weep and mourn and pray and return to God. Do that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in the coming decades of planting these churches together, that none of us would ever come to the place where we think, okay, we're done here. We have fallen way too far from God. Look how pathetic my obedience is. I pray that instead, the the character of God and his furious and relentless and limitless love would be the fire that drives Seven Mile Road and the lives of my brothers and my sisters and that in our constant returning to you, we would just keep being reminded you've already jumped off the porch and you are sprinting toward us, that you welcome the prodigal, you welcome Mordecai, you welcome Esther, (laughs) you welcome Matthew Cruz, you welcomed each of us that we would see it and rest in it and believe it and take hold of it together. Hear my prayer. Amen.